Please turn with me to John chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 37 through 52. In our text tonight, we see something very interesting that in spite of opposition, in spite of opposition, Jesus still invites people to come to him for spiritual refreshment. And we'll see the different responses he offers, which, by the way, is still relevant today. Let's read our text. John 7, verses 37 to 52. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David, and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is a curse. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for your word is so timely. As it was then, it's as relevant today, just as relevant today. Help us illuminate our minds and hearts so we can receive what the Spirit is saying through the evangelist John. And, and we could be changed in the innermost being, and streams of living water will truly flow out of our hearts, in Christ's name. Amen. You know, when I was about 10 years old, I was walking home from school one day, and I walked down West 6th Street, where my cousin lived, and passed in front of his house, where his mother was standing on the front porch. I remember this very clear, this was 50 years ago. It was a warm day, and I was extremely thirsty to say the least, very thirsty. I felt like I was in a desert saying, water, water, someone please give me water. And I don't know about you, but the last thing I wanted to see was someone was eating pretzels. And guess what she was eating? My cousin was eating salty pretzels. The worst thing I could have heard was, hi John, do you want some pretzels? And of course I said to her, no thanks, I'm thirsty. The worst response I could have heard was, oh, okay, and not offer me a drink of water. I walked the rest of the way home thirsty and parched. And in our gospel text tonight, Jesus invites, invites the spiritually thirsty to come to him and drink. And if we come to him and ask for a drink, he will not say, oh, okay, and not offer you a drink, and you go away in your thirst. No, he will satisfy your thirst. Amen. That's the kind of Savior we have. You and I are thirsty. People are thirsty. And I want to ask you this, and I want you to think of this throughout the message. Is your thirst being satisfied by things? Is it being satisfied by wardrobes, a new car, or maybe a new experience, or whatever? Or is your spiritual thirst satisfied by Christ and Christ alone? Christ may have saved you 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Who knows? He invited you to come to him and drink, and you did. You repented from your sins, you trusted in Christ, he satisfied you spiritually, remember that? Your thirst was quenched. You knew your sins had been forgiven, and you knew you were heaven bound. However, you still need to come to Jesus for spiritual refreshment. And this message is not only for the person who does not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, but also for the believer who daily needs to drink from the rivers of living water. Just give me a brief review. Chapter 7. This is the fifth installment of chapter 7. 
And we're going to conclude chapter 7 tonight. And chapter 7 is where Jesus is making his final journey to Jerusalem. It's months before he will die by way of the cross. And prior to the events of chapter 7, he told his disciples for the first time, I'm going to die. I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and Pharisees, and I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to die. So Jesus is walking in Jerusalem now in the shadow of the cross. This is the final period of ministry of Jesus Christ. The beginning of chapter 7, which by the way was the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles, we read Jesus' brothers wanting him to go to the feast to openly declare himself as the Messiah. Of course, Jesus is not on man's timetable. He was on his father's divine timetable. And, and not man's. And so he declined. And sad to say, even his own brothers did not believe in him. However, after his brothers went, Jesus went, but secretly, which was now the middle of the feast. And he entered Jerusalem. And as Jesus always does, he likes to stir up controversy, doesn't he? He goes right into the temple and he begins to teach. And his teaching caused great debate, great confusion, and great conviction. That's what Jesus' teaching does. And by the way, teaching does that today. True, sound doctrine does that today. It divides. It convicts. It causes great confusion amongst those who really don't want to know the truth. And there were five debates that erupted in chapter 7, which we already looked at. The, doctor, the debate about his character, the debate about his doctrine, his teaching, the, the debate about his works, the debate about where he came from, his origin, and his warning, the debate about his warning. And tonight we're going to conclude chapter 7. In this section, we will see three applicable points that are as relevant today as it was back then. The first is, we're going to see the invitation. Jesus invites you and me to come to him and him alone for spiritual refreshment. The second point will be the Holy Spirit is given. The Holy Spirit is given to those who respond to Jesus' invitation. And then the third point will be the responses of the people. Some of them were convinced. Some of them were unconvinced. Some of them were confused. Some of them were angry. And some of them were uh, contemplative or fair-minded. And we see the different responses in his invitation. And only one of those responses leads to salvation and spiritual refreshment of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at the first one, the invitation. Verse 37 again. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This section is the end of the feast. Okay, we had the beginning of the feast, we had the middle of the feast, and now this is the end of the feast. This is the Feast of the Tabernacles, also called, called the Feast of Booths, or ingathering, and it lasted seven days. This feast celebrated the autumn harvest, and it also did something else. It commemorated God's provision, protection, and deliverance during, if you, you remember, the 40 years of the wilderness wandering of the Exodus. And each morning of the feast, at this time of the sacrifices, this is very interesting, the priests would draw water in a golden vessel from the Pool of Siloam and carry it to the temple to be poured out. As the procession of priests and people were on their way to the temple, when they came to the water gate, which was the south side of the inner temple court, there would be three trumpet blasts. And the people would recite Isaiah 12.3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And the people would follow the priest carrying palms and willow, a palm and a willow and myrtle branches called the, the lulab. In, in the right hand, that's this hand, not, that, not this hand. Which was symbolic of Israel when they journeyed through the wilderness. And, left, and in the left hand they carried citrus branches called the ethrog. And it was reminiscent of the harvest. So the crowds would shake the branches as they followed the priests and singing Psalms 113 to 118 called the Hallel Psalms. And when they got back to the temple, the priests would circle the altar once while the people continued singing and pour the water out onto the altar. And every morning during the feast, this is what took place. And on the seventh day, the procession took place seven times. They did this seven times. Now we need to picture this. Judaism saw this ceremony on multiple levels. This was a big celebration to them. 
Like when we celebrate the 4th of July with parades, fireworks, and barbecues, and we remember our country's independence, or Memorial Day, which we also celebrate with parades and barbecues, and we remember the men and women who fought and died for the protection of this nation. Once again, Judaism celebrated the Feast of the Tabernacles on multiple levels. The first one was, it was a plea for God, to God, for rain, for the harvest, since autumn was a time of possible drought. So they pleaded for God for rain. And the second one was this reminded the Jews of Israel when they were in the desert and when they were very, very thirsty. You remember that. And there was no water to drink. Exodus chapter 17 tells us that Israel complained to Moses. They were constantly complaining. It sounds like people on my job. Constantly complaining. And they, and they complained to Moses about their situation. So Moses took their complaint to the Lord and the Lord God of Israel said, strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. So Moses struck the rock and water came out and Israel drank. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.4, Christ was that rock. It was Christ who protected and sustained his people in the wilderness. Now that was the backdrop. And here it is on the greatest and last day of the feast. And Jesus steps into the crowd, the crowd's view, probably by the altar, and makes the most stunning pronouncement of the feast. You've got to understand this. It was probably, some scholars say it may have been the eighth day. I have a tendency to think it was the seventh day. Because as the priests are circling the altar and pouring the water, Jesus steps out, Right? Um, he steps out in the altar and the Bible says he cried out with a loud voice. And this was not a normal speaking voice. He screamed and so all would hear. He said, anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This wasn't the first time Jesus invited people to believe in him in John's gospel. And it wasn't the first time he pictured salvation as living water. Remember the woman at the well in the fourth chapter of John, where he offered the Samaritan woman living water in private. Now he shouts out an invitation to the crowd to come to him and drink. Jesus also used um, the metaphor of the bread of of bread, that he was the bread of life in John chapter 6. Jesus announced himself in a variety of ways. However, they all mean the same. Matthew 5, 6 says... Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And if we are truly seeking God, He will satisfy our hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what I find amazing is, whether Jesus identifies Himself as the bread of life or as the living water, He is always inviting people to believe in Him, even when the crowds are hostile towards Him. There's three words we must look at to understand Jesus' invitation in verse 37. First one is thirsty. Second one is come. And the third one is drink. First, you must be thirsty. You must be thirsty. Only those who are thirsty and recognize their spiritual thirst can respond to Christ's invitation. Only the thirsty. Isaiah 55.1 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. If you don't recognize your thirst, your spiritual bankruptcy, that's what it is, your spiritual bankruptcy, you cannot and will not respond to his invitation. By the way, thirst is more of an opportunity than a problem. It's an opportunity for spiritual thirst, for the spiritual thirsty to go to the one who could provide water to quench that thirst. Are you thirsty tonight? Are you weighed down with sin? Do you see how spiritually bankrupt you are? Then you must come to Jesus. First, you must recognize your thirst, and second, you must come to Jesus. You cannot find relief for your thirst unless you come to the only one who can quench that thirst. Frequently, Jesus invited people to come to him. And it was only those who came to him that could have their thirst quenched. However, it is still not enough to acknowledge your thirst and then come to Jesus and have it quenched. It's not enough. The rich young ruler came to Jesus. He was thirsty. He came to Jesus for spiritual refreshment but went away in his thirst. 
He recognized his thirst and came to Jesus. He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But he walked away just as parched and thirsty as when he came to Jesus because he was unwilling to do the third and essential step, and that is to drink. First, you must recognize your thirst. And secondly, in your thirst, come to Jesus. But thirdly, you must drink. To drink means this, to believe in Christ. It means to enter into a trusting, ongoing relationship with Him. This does not imply a mere intellectual assent, but a wholehearted, personal involvement and participation. We see a lot of people don't understand, believe. Today, when I share the gospel with a lot of people, they always tell me they believe in Jesus, but their life has never been affected by Jesus. To believe in Jesus means to enter into a deep, committed relationship to Him. Of course, thirst, come and drink are metaphors for salvation. That is, we recognize we're sinners and unrighteous and long for His righteousness and a right relationship with Christ. And by faith, we turn from our sins and we trust in Christ. But this message is not just for the unconverted soul to come to Jesus. That's where it begins. But then it continues. The Christian also thirsts for God's righteousness continually. And we come to Him daily. And we drink from Him daily. This is the Christian life. Yes, when we initially came to Jesus to have our sins forgiven... When we took our first drink, we became fully satisfied. We were satisfied in the fact that our souls are saved for eternity. We were satisfied in the fact that we looked no further for the way of salvation. Jesus is the way. But we still thirst for becoming more like Jesus. Are you thirsty for God? Are you thirsty for Christ? Are you thirsty for His kingdom? Do you hunger and thirst for His righteousness when you get up in the morning and throughout the day and when you go to bed? Do you? Ask yourself that question. I ask myself that question. I want to be more thirsty for Christ and His kingdom every day. I am not satisfied where I'm at. I want to move up. More like, to be more like Jesus is my goal. To be more like Christ is my goal. Psalm 42, 1 says, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul... So my soul for you, O oh God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. This is a, fi- a fitting simile, it's called, for the soul's needs for the living God. As the deer in a drought-stricken area pants in exhaustion for water. You see the picture here? Just as a deer needs water to survive, we need God. We can't live without Him. We must have Him every moment of every day. And sometimes it breaks my heart. It really does. And I know Pastor Brian, we share this all the time, how people might come to an altar call or they they say, oh, I gave my life to Christ. But their life is so shallow. They don't really thirst for the things of God. They don't thirst for Him on a daily basis, every day. Paul told the Colossian church, he said, therefore, as you receive Christ the Lord, so walk in Him, Colossians 2.6. Now the context of this is the Colossians received Christ, Jesus, as the Lord and had, a deep, and had deep convictions about the personal work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who He was and what He did. And Paul is admonishing them to walk in Him, meaning continue in that truth, the same way they received Him. In a broader application, which I like to use tonight, the believers at Colossae thirsted for righteousness and forgiveness and they put their trust in Christ. In this way, they drank the living water. They now need to continue in that. And the same is true for the believer today. We, the way we thirsted for Christ and His righteousness and came to Jesus and drank the living waters and were saved, we now need to continue in that. Not to, not to get saved. We're, we're saved already. God saved us. But to grow in our salvation. We, we now need to continue to thirst for Christ. We continue to come to Christ and we continue to drink from Christ. It's a lifestyle. This is a lifestyle I'm talking about. Now before we came to Christ and drank from the living water, He provided, He provides the living water. And by the way, I believe He puts the thirst in us too. 
But before we came to Christ and drank from the living water, we did not have rivers of living water flowing from our hearts. In other words, we did not have the Holy Spirit. But once we came to Christ and drank, meaning we repented and wholeheartedly received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we had this well of water springing up to eternal life. Do you remember that? Do you remember the Holy Spirit just flowing out of your hearts? Do you? Raise your hand. (laughs) But if you don't respond to the invitation, you won't come to Him and you certainly will not drink. Need to drink. A few years ago, my wife Kim and I were invited to a wedding in Pennsylvania around the Lancaster area. And the wedding was to take place in December. Well, that was two strikes against going to that wedding for me. One, I didn't want to go to Pennsylvania for a wedding. And second, I didn't want to go to Pennsylvania in the winter. That's me. I'm weird, I know. Brian tells me all the time. It's okay, I have my little... Box. My little box. Well, now my wife... That was my take on it. But my wife, on the other hand, saw it as an opportunity to make a nice getaway, a weekend, a fun weekend. We could go to a bed and breakfast. I know she probably wanted to see some candles and incense or whatever. I don't know. But good stuff. Good stuff. Well, the end result was we didn't go. We just sent the gift. And we declined the invitation. What we didn't know was at the wedding, and by the way, the groom kept telling me before he was married, he kept telling me, you need to come, there's going to be a surprise. And we were the only couple, my friend George and Jones Alum, they were invited too. But he kept telling us, you need to come, there's going to be a surprise. But I'm dull, I'm not as sharp as Kim. And what we didn't know, which was a surprise, was at the wedding, you're at a wedding now, It's it's not a huge thing, it's a couple of hundred people, that's all. At this wedding... Many well-known Christian leaders and singers were at this wedding. Well-known. People I admire over, over my whole history of Christianity. Well, when my wife found out, I was in the doghouse for a long time. Anyway, the point is, we declined the invite and we did not go and we did not participate in the celebration with the added surprise. You see, when you respond to Jesus invitation and come to him and drink the living waters he alone gives, you have a wonderful surprise, the Holy Spirit. This is the second point. Those who respond to Jesus' invitation are given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to those, only those, who respond to his invitation. Never try to make a non-Christian live like a Christian. They don't have the Holy Spirit they can't, they can't, and they won't. Let's read verses 38 and 39. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet... The Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. First, we need to clear up any misunderstandings of the Holy Spirit's involvement in the people of the Old Testament before Jesus' ascension and glorification. Jesus and John are not saying, are not saying that the Holy Spirit was not present or active when Jesus walked the earth or in the past redemptive history. He was not saying they was not saying that. As a matter of fact, the Spirit was very present and very active. It was the Holy Spirit who anointed the prophets, the kings, and the priests. It was the Holy Spirit who changed the hearts of unbelievers in the Old Testament and made them people of God. As it is today, there was no regeneration, no salvation without the Spirit's work. The difference is the anointing of the Spirit for power was limited to a few like Moses, Samson, Elijah, Elisha, David, etc. However, there was a time coming when the Holy Spirit would be given without limit to all believers as they, and they will possess a power from, from Him in, for ministry and evangelism. Let me give you just two brief examples of the Holy Spirit's present in the Old Testament and the Holy Spirit's present in the New Testament. Um, and, and the 
New Testament's unique power to believers after Christ's glorification. In Numbers chapter 11, we read that the children of Israel complained. They complained about, once again, they complained. It goes to show you, don't complain. They complained about their journey in the wilderness. They complained about Moses' leadership. They complained about God's promises. They complained. God gave them manna. Manna, manna, manna. They were tired of manna. We have manna burgers, manna dati, manna this, manna that. And it says, God's anger burned against them. And he sent fire and consumed some of them. And Moses, being the man of God, he was prayed. And the Lord quenched the fire. Well, Moses was so distressed that he actually asked God to take his life. But God, in his mercy and grace, gave Moses 70 men to bear the burden of leading the people. Listen to Numbers 11, verses 15 through 17. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once, if I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. See, when the spirit came upon them, upon them they began to prophesy around the tabernacle. But there were two men who remained in the camp, Eldad and Medad, and they too prophesied. However, Moses' assistant Joshua, he got a little ticked off about that. And he was upset with them and, and told Moses to forbid them from prophesying because they weren't the other ones that were in the tabernacle. Listen to Moses' response in Numbers 11.29. And I believe this is prophetic of Joel's prophecy. And Joel's prophecy, prophecy is prophetic of the birth of the church. Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. See, the prophet Joel actually foretold the very thing that all God's people would be prophets. Joel 2.20 And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and the female servants. In those, in those days I will pour out my spirit. This was filled, fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Disciples were in the upper room, and the Holy Spirit filled every one of them. Not one of them was not filled with the Holy Spirit. There was 120 in the upper room. And this is our New Testament example. Let's read Acts 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came a sound, or came from heaven, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now I'm not here to preach about the gifts of the Spirit, tongues, prophecy, if it's for today, if it's not for today. I'm not here to discuss that. I'm just here to discuss the infilling of the Holy Spirit for every single believer. Martin Luther called this the priesthood of all believers when this happened. That we all became priests when this happened. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is now for every true believer in Christ. When a person puts their faith and trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit baptizes that person with himself. So summarizing verse 39, yes, the Holy Spirit was in operation before Christ was glorified. But after his glorification, the Spirit was given to believers in the full Christian sense where every believer can now do the greater works. Every believer is anointed. If you're a believer, you are anointed with power for reaching the lost, for edifying the saints, and thus glorifying God. Every believer. We now have rivers of living water flowing from our hearts. This is not a lake. It's not a pond which becomes stagnant because it's not flowing. No, this is fresh flowing river of God's Holy Spirit that flows from our innermost being. And listen, it overflows to others. Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher who worked 
in a shoe store. One day he shared the gospel with a young man who received Christ as Lord and Savior. And that man touched thousands with the gospel of Jesus Christ. His name was Dwight L. Moody. And one of Moody's gospel meetings, a man's heart was touched for God, and his name was Wilbur Chapman. Chapman became an evangelist who preached to thousands. And one day, a professional baseball player was one, at one of Chapman's meetings and was converted to Christ. That man's name was Billy Sunday. He quit baseball and became part of Chapman's team, but eventually began his own evangelistic crusades. Another man named Mordecai Ham was converted. One day Mordecai Ham was preaching. A young man was converted through his, through his preaching of the gospel. That man's name was Dr. Billy Graham. It is said that Mr. Graham preached to more than 2.2, not million, billion people, more than anyone in the history of Christianity, more than Paul the Apostle. You see, it started with, and here's the point I want to make, and I want, you, I want to drive this home into your hearts. It started with the overflowing heart of a sh- shoe store stockman. Somebody who worked in the stock room of a shoe store, heart overflowing, shared the gospel with somebody, and it led to Dr. Billy Graham's conversion. Amen. Is your thirst satisfied? Is your thirst satisfied life overflowing to others, or is your life stagnant? Is your life like Christ to others? Maybe you never took a drink from the living water that leads to eternal life. Or maybe you have. And the flowing waters have somehow got dammed up. You're not excited about Christ anymore and it shows. People don't know you're a Christian. Well, if you never drank or if you did drink, the flowing river is now dammed up. You need to speak to the Lord about it tonight. After Jesus spoke to the crowds and cried out this great invitation to come to him and drink, it had a great effect on those who heard it. And this brings us to our third and final point, the responses. We see different responses to his invitation. And only one of those responses leads to salvation and spiritual refreshment in the Holy Spirit. Jesus' words, no doubt, as I said before, brought the vision. And there are five different responses which part we see today as well. The first was the convinced. There were some that were convinced. There was a remnant of God's people in that crowd. Verse 41 to the first half of 41, I'm sorry, verses 40 through the first half of 41. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. You see, somewhat convinced at least that Jesus was the prophet of whom Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 18, when he told the Israelites that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you and from your brothers. It is him you shall listen to. Some understood the prophet to be the Messiah, which is the correct understanding, while others understood the prophet to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And even though this view was incomplete, it wasn't really complete. They were convinced, at least they were convinced that he was from God. Others in the crowd had a more accurate understanding of Jesus, and they said, this is the Christ. This is probably just a believing remnant who were thirsty for truth, and finally accepted Jesus' invitation to come to him and drink unto eternal life. You see, they were convinced. Many times the gospel is preached, and some do believe. Most of the time, when we preach the gospel, only a remnant... You could be Dr. Billy Graham preaching to the multitudes or you in a little crowd in a supermarket or with your family. But most of the time, only a remnant come. However, there are times, there are times when great outpouring of God's Holy Spirit falls upon cities. It's called a revival. And many come thirsty to Christ, repenting and trusting in the Savior. And their great thirst is satisfied. I pray that happens in Bay Ridge. Amen. I really pray that it starts here, that the overflowing spirit in our hearts, because we're so in love with Jesus Christ, that we go out to the highways and the byways in Bay Ridge, and we see people come to Christ in droves. 
I really pray that. Brian and I and our wives have been praying that. We want to see Bay Ridge turned upside down for Christ. Second response was the unconvinced. Verse, the second half of verse 41 to 42. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? He had a sarcasm. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Not all in the crowd were convinced. Some found it difficult to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Some of them were Jerusalemites or released Judea, uh, Judeans. Um, you had Jerusalem and Judea. That was the whole area. It's like New York City in the New York State. But, but they knew the scriptures that spoke of the Messiah because they lived in that area. And they knew that he would come from David's line and would be born in Bethlehem. They knew 2 Samuel 7. They knew Psalm 89. They knew Isaiah 9. They knew um, Isaiah 55. They knew Micah 5. All these scriptures that speak, that speak about the line of David and, and, and that he would be born in Bethlehem. But their facts, their facts about Jesus was wrong. Because he was born from David's line and was born in Bethlehem. He was just residing in Galilee. If they looked a little further, they would have seen that, hey, he's just, he was born in Bethlehem. He's just, it's like me, I was born in, in Brooklyn. But maybe I'm now living in Florida. You know, it doesn't mean I was born in Florida because I'm living there now. But they didn't get their facts straight. Many do that today. They needed to get their facts straight. Christians, by the way, quite often fall into this trap. My wife and I went to dinner with another couple one day at the Jersey Shore. And during our conversation, a TV minister came up. And I knew this one very well because we used to support this particular ministry. Well, one day I found out this ministry had some pretty horrific teachings. I want to say it was really heretical teachings. And I wrote to the ministry to find out if that was true. They did answer me back. They were gracious enough to answer me back. But not to my satisfaction. So we pulled our support. <clears throat> anyway, <clears throat> excuse me. The couple we were having dinner with were big fans of this ministry. And in our conversation when the ministry came up, Kim said that I had a, meaning me, you know, John has something to say, right? Um, that I had a problem with it. So they asked me what was the problem. And I told them there were two problems with this particular ministry. The first one was they teach that Christ did not finish the atonement on the cross, but in hell for three days between his death and resurrection. That, there's no scriptural support for that. Second thing I told them was I wasn't sure where they stood on concerning Christ's deity. When I wrote to them about that, about Christ's deity, they, the answer was very vague and confusing to say the least. Since then I found out they believed that when Christ was on the cross and said it is finished, he ceased to be God. Jesus Christ never ceased to be God. He always was, always is, and always will be. You depart from that, you're not a Christian. Now I understand that people get saved and they don't understand the full implications of Christ's divinity. I'm not talking about that. But once you find out and understand what the scriptures teach about Christ's divinity and you reject that, you can't be a Christian. You're dividing, you're, you're, you're rejecting an essential Orthodox teaching that's biblical. But the very disturbing part to me was this. When I told them this, they defended the ministry and made all kinds of excuses for it. Their excuses was a sloppy handling of the scripture. It seemed to be more based on an emotional attachment to the minister rather than the proper interpretation of the scripture that would expose the error. In my opinion, this is my opinion about this couple we ate with. Because we know them, <coughs> excuse me, we know them very well. <coughs> that if push came to shove, they would hold to Christ's de- deity and his atonement on the cross. I believe they really hold that view, but they were just trying to defend the ministry. However, because of their emotional attachment with the ministry, the facts about Christ were clouded, just like many in the crowd who thought Jesus was not born in Bethlehem and, and was not in the line of David. We need to be very careful of getting our facts straight. 
Verse 43 says, So there was a division among the people over him. Listen, truth and doctrine, or truth, sound doctrine, will inevitably divide. And this was no surprise to Jesus. Listen to Matthew 10, verses 34 to 35. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And another one in Luke, chapter 12, verses 51 through 53. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, a father against son, and a son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. What he does is, he divides believers from unbelievers. Unfortunately, sometimes believers get divided because some believers don't have their facts straight. Third response was the confused, verses 44 through 49. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And this is the third and unsuccessful time that they tried to arrest Jesus. But no one could ever thwart the plan of God. It simply wasn't the right time in God's perfect plan. When the officers came back to the Jewish authorities, they came back empty-handed without Jesus. And they wanted to know, hey, why didn't you bring him back here? All they could say was, no one ever spoke like him. No one ever spoke like this man. You see, these were, Roman, these were not Roman gods, but religious trained Levites and Christ's words, because they know the scriptures, Christ's words must have cut them to the heart. It totally threw them for a loop. They became confused. I love what Dr. John MacArthur says in his commentary on John. He says, while they did not accept him as the Messiah, neither did they openly reject him. They did not know what to do with him. Caught between the power and grace of his message and the hatred of their leaders, they were paralyzed into inactivity. Dr. Kent Yu says it like this, they came to arrest Jesus, but Jesus arrested them. And we see that over and over again. People amazed at the gospel message, and as soon as they share with religious leaders or religious person, they're shut down immediately, and that person that was once amazed by the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ is now confused by it and fearful of offending the religious hierarchy. And the fourth response was anger. Verses 47 to 49. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the Lord is a curse. See, the Pharisees thought they were the spiritual elite. They believed that the common people were incapable of understanding the law, which is a reference, the law of reference to the Old Testament, especially the rabbinic traditions. Even though they thought they were spiritually superior to everyone else, do you ever notice in the Gospels Jesus held the highest criticism for them? They weren't thirsty for the living God. They weren't. They, you know what they were thirsty for? The praise of men. That's what they were thirsty for. And when someone in the crowd had the audacity to be drawn to Jesus, they became angry. They became really angry. Angry to a point that it nailed the Savior to a cross. The real deceived were many of the Israel's leaders, not the ones who trusted in Christ. I love when people tell me, I love this, when they tell me Christians are brainwashed. My response to them always is, yes, our brains have been washed clean. Thank you. The fifth... That's not an original. My friend told me that 30 years ago. I'll tell them that you clapped for me. The fifth and final response was the contemplative, or better yet, the fair-minded. Uh, verses 50 to 52. Nicodemus, 
who had gone to him before, and it was one of them, said to them, Does our Lord judge a man first without first, or a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now Nicodemus was was probably a prominent teacher in Israel back then. He was one who came to Jesus earlier in in, uh, chapter 3. He may not have been a disciple of Jesus at this point, but I believe later he did become a follower of Jesus as you read John chapter 19 verse 39. And I say his response was fair-minded because he confronted the Pharisees with their failure to keep their own laws. Deuteronomy 1, 16 through 17, which basically says, hey, hear the case first before you condemn them. They were not interested in that. They were not interested in it because if Jesus was found innocent, there goes their nice religious system which elevated them, not God. In fundamental Muslim countries, the terrorists, especially now with ISIS, the Islamic State in Syria, or ISIL, the Islamic State in Levant, is said to have one goal, and that is to restore Islamic, an Islamic State in the re- region of Syria, Iraq, all the way down to Egypt. They're also telling Christians to convert to Islam or to be killed. They're like the Pharisees. Pharisees were no better than the Islamic terrorists, the fundamentalists, because they're not all, at all interested in fairness. Closed minds are not interested in fairness. And as a result of the Pharisees' unwillingness to at least give Jesus a fair hearing, Nicodemus was identified as a Galilean. The fa- to the Pharisees, that was the most demeaning insult they could make since they considered the Galileans unsophisticated and they despised them. So they called him a name. You're a Galilean. Are you from Galilee too? So they mocked him and challenged him to search the scriptures to see that no prophet came from Galilee. Or Galilee. Well, how ironic that they should mock Nicodemus along with the crowd as being ignorant when they were the ones who were ignorant. They seemed to conveniently overlook the fact that Jonah, the prophet Jonah, was from Galilee and possibly Nahum. Some of the scholars believe that Nahum, Hosea, and other prophets as well were from Galilee. There's this young man we work with. Mary and I work together at DHL at Kennedy Airport. And this young man we work with, his name is Abed. Now Abed is from Lebanon, and he's a practicing Muslim. He's a lovable, wonderful young man. He's around 29 years old, married. He's just one of these kids you want to hug him. He's respectful, he's, he's, he's a hard worker. And in the world's standards, he's a good man. Not in God's economy, but in the world's standards, he's a good man. And this week we had an opportunity to talk to him about the differences between Muhammad and Jesus, the Bible and the Quran. And because of time, I'm just going to give you the short end of it. I explained to him that the Bible is not one book, but a compilation of 66 books and has approximately 40 different authors. It was written in a period of over 1,500 years on three different continents in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And I continue explaining that Islam recognizes the Bible, and I was, I was telling him, or I should say reminding him, that Islam does recognize the Bible as God's revelation, but they recognize the Quran as the final authority. So I told him that the Quran is one book from one man's vision, and has no witnesses, as whereas Jesus has met much witness, he has many witnesses from the Trinity, uh, he has a witness from the Father, from the Spirit, from the Apostles, from the Prophets, um, he has the witness of his works, he has the witness of Scripture, so on and so forth, he has a lot of witnesses. And he said, what well, they're all witnesses, the Prophets that were before, you see now, I, I said to him, are you speaking of Moses and Abraham? So, and he acknowledged that. He said, yes. You know, Moses like, uh, prophets like Moses and Abraham and others in the Old Testament. So I challenged him to think about something. I said, Islam acknowledges the Bible as God's revelation. And the Quran mentions Jesus 77 times, right? And Muhammad is only mentioned 25 times. 
It also speaks of the Old Testament prophets. It does. If you read the Quran, there's a lot of the Old Testament prophets. So, it strongly acknowledges, the Quran strongly acknowledges Christian scripture. And here's where I challenged him. But the Christian scriptures make no mention of Muhammad or his vision at all. Your Quran does mention the prophets in Christ. Matter of fact, it talks about Christ more than Muhammad. But the Christian scriptures, which you acknowledge as revelation from God, speak nothing of Muhammad or his vision. I hope he listens to the facts. The Pharisees didn't listen to the facts, and as a result, continued in their thirst, and will never have living waters flowing from their hearts, refreshing others with the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's conclude with a few challenging questions I have for you. How do you respond to Jesus' invitation to drink from Him? I'm talking to Christians and non-Christians now. This, and when I was studying this passage of Scripture, I was, it was speaking to me too. How do you respond to Jesus' invitation to drink from Him? Are you convinced? Are you unconvinced? Are you confused? Are you fair-minded or are you angry? There's only one answer to have your thirst quenched. You need to be convinced. Do you know Jesus? Are your sins forgiven? Has He quenched your thirst? Are you overflowing in your heart with the Holy Spirit? If not, tonight you can ask Him, give me a drink, Jesus. Give me a drink. I believe in you. I'm trusting in you tonight. Help me live the life that I need to live for you. And if you're like me and have taken a drink and experienced forgiveness and rivers of living water flowing from your heart, then you have been satisfied. However, it doesn't end there. We continue to thirst for Christ every moment of every day. We can't get enough of Jesus. Can you get enough of Jesus? Can you? Did you ever get enough of Jesus and say, I'm satisfied, I don't need any more of Him? Is the river that once flowed from your heart, Ned, now dammed up from a broken relationship or disappointment or maybe this world's pleasures and now life is stagnant? Whatever it is, Speak to him now and drink again. Drink afresh. Revelation 22, and we'll close with this. says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your offer for thirsty sinners is still in effect today. Help us to take a drink and let rivers of living water flow from our hearts, touching other lives in Christ's name.